Welcome to another episode of Strategy and Sourdough. After a brief break that we didn't really plan for, Thomas and I are back in our virtual studio with a guest today. Hi, Thomas. Hi, Honor. Good to be back after a brief, as you mentioned, unplanned break. So today we have Usman Sheikh in our studio. Hi, Usman. Hello. Good to be here. Usman is an old friend of mine. And he is currently the managing director and the founder of High Output Ventures, an investment firm that specializes in seed state startups across Southeast Asia. He's also very familiar with the challenges of being an entrepreneur. He started a couple of businesses and sold some of them himself, one of them being a software for HR industry called Identify, which I believe is still running. Yep, it's still running. Yeah, so we are very excited to have you on board today. Yeah, thanks for inviting me and excited about our conversation as well, because it's such an interesting topic. Yeah, I think it's time to make it official. <laughs> All right, let's let's kick things off. The first right. thing I want to ask straight off the bat is growth challenges among startups that you work with. I know your company already invests in and mentors uh, startups across the Southeast Asia region. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about what kind of companies that you invest in and how do they approach growth? Right. So High Output Ventures, we focus specifically on partnering and funding businesses which are run by subject matter experts who have an area of domain expertise that we feel like by partnering up with HOV, they get access to both capital and uh, people which help them to accelerate the rate at which they will get forward with their business. We usually invest in the quantums of 50 to $250,000 and are usually the first sort of like check into a company. Our focus areas are frontier markets around Southeast Asia, and South Asia, so everywhere from Philippines, Vietnam, Bangladesh, Pakistan, et cetera, are markets that we specifically look at. Singapore is definitely part and parcel of that. We have a couple of businesses in Singapore as we're based out of Singapore as well. And I've been running businesses in Singapore now for over 17 years, so it's been a while. So when we usually partner up with companies, the biggest challenge that they have is that, which all of us have faced, which is we have product and then we have marketing. And now we have, in our case, a domain expert, which we have given a lot of leeway to, to focus squarely on product. And they always have ideas as to how the marketing angle and the growth angle are going to fit into this. Usually it's a conversation which begins with, let's sort of like get started with paid marketing of some sort, or should we invest in SEO and immediately we go directly to tactics as ways of how to get started because that is, I mean, that's for someone who's not really acquainted with that space. I think it's natural to see that flow move forward. I think what they really miss and what we try to do with our companies is I think the story is critical for early stage startups and something that we work with a lot from everywhere, from how you pitch a company to your elevator pitches, if you're a venture backable company to how you speak to customers and defining who that customer is. This is usually a challenging exercise because 
yeah, sometimes we start with very broad markets. For example, we just recently did a deal in Vietnam for a health and wellness company, which is specifically focusing on the 25 to 35 age demographic in Vietnam for women to find out more about health, wellness, and generally moving forward. I think that's a good example of where the entrepreneur was already pretty focused on what she wanted to do. But still, how to reach that market and get to them usually reverts back to tactics. And what we help with is that whole piece of defining who the customer is, how do you position that, how do we come up with strategies which will help connect that divide, which are usually quite far away from just paid marketing as a whole. And those are some of the initial things that we do with companies, but it is always a challenge as there is always that split between product and marketing and which takes because the new feature or let's launch that mobile app or let's do this is always on the cards as that next thing, which is going to get the business to take off and rarely does. It's one of the things that we talk a lot about on the show. I'm glad that you mentioned it as well. Founders in the early days are very excited to get the product out into the market. And once they achieve product market fit, the focus starts to shift into growing the business. But at that point, the conversation tends to be very tactical. When you realize that you hit a roadblock and that you need to take a more thoughtful, more strategic approach to how you need to grow the business and how you must approach marketing. What's that conversation look like between you and the companies that you invest in? Do people really internalize the need for a more systematic approach or is it more of the same, more of trial and error and trying out different channels? Yeah. So one of the things that we do pretty early on then is try to figure out like what that funnel process actually looks like for the, the business as a whole. I think that provides a decent visualization for people who are not squarely sort of like really work on 30 variations of the logo and sort of like brand identity for the company, which has its place. But I think we start with the funnel as to who the customer is. And then we try to break it down as to how someone is going to move through those and then how do we broaden that out. We have a company in the fintech space in Singapore called ReadScreener. And uh, that's definitely a business that we have experimented with. But you know, the largest source of traffic for us has been the, the organic building of a financial blog, which is now ranked as one of the top five financial blogs in Singapore. And that has just, you know, we haven't really spent monetary sort of like funds on that to promote that, but the founder is a thought a leader in that space and has written diligently for three years. And that pays massive dividends in building up email list of tens of thousands of people, which then actually can be converted in later stages of the funnel. So I think instead of doing this, while there is a lot of experimentation at the top of the funnel, we usually sway towards where do we have the most amount of leverage from the founder's capacity to do that? Because I think like we don't, HOV doesn't act like an agency which just comes in and plugs in and says, all right, cool, we'll do some SEO for you. How do we build a team around this company with uh, the strengths that they have that they will be able to convert that? And uh, whereas, you know, in the health and fitness company that I was just talking about, she's taking a very different approach to doing offline activation 
in Vietnam because again, it's very different as a market over there and she's using the offline channels aggressively with magazines and other sort of like ways to get that going. So I don't think that there's ever how, you know, we've spoken before, how I wish there was a playbook for marketing that we could be like, here, deploy this. But it's very different. I mean, my background is also when I was running Identify, it was in B2B enterprise software. And that takes a very different sort of like things whereby we would be going to a lot of these conferences and networking and actually getting access to the right sort of like groups, advertising in some of the editorials that they read and things like that to start getting the presence up there because some person needs to know. So I think through the years of doing this many times over and over again, it's now clear like there, there is no playbook as much as I would like there to be a, a definitive playbook for all types of businesses. But I do think that you could have playbooks for certain niche vertical parts of businesses. We've noticed that we have several e-commerce businesses in our portfolio and now they can leverage on one another to see different sort of like market segments that can leverage as to what's happening with an ROI on a Facebook campaign versus Instagram versus this versus what's happening with SEO. But, you know, on a more macro basis, I do think that it differs considerably. I guess it's fair to say that with um, every industry and every company, the tactics and the way that you approach the different parts of that funnel will vary. But nonetheless, perhaps a good starting point is to determine that customer and determine that funnel for each one of the companies at a startup stage. But you mentioned something really interesting um, in that when you spoke about it. You said there's a lot of experimentation usually at the top of the funnel. Can you give a, a couple of examples of some of the companies perhaps that you invested in um, or some of these experimentations that some of the listeners might learn from, especially at the top of the funnel? Yeah. I think when we're, when we're wanting to, to build that, I think I'll use the, the FinTech example over here. Uh, in the early days with the, the blog, we, we had the blog strategy. We also had a paid media strategy. We used an affiliate strategy as well. So I think like the, the business is in REITs, which is considerably niche area in the, the financial space, which not too many people know about. And so getting that awareness out there, we had to attempt to use multiple channels to see what that rate of inbound looked like for us, because we didn't know at the start as to what those acquisition. And when we're looking down through this, it also is a function of how much is that customer going to be potentially worth, because that's also a function. So if our affiliates were charging us 50% off certain sort of like revenue generated, like that's a massive cut right at the top and coming down, it sort of like really eats into your gross margins and really dilutes that. So we did that, I think with some of the e-commerce companies, we just invested in a shoe e-commerce company in Pakistan and they're trying a lot. They, they tried with the paid ads, but they're actually trying with influencer marketing right now uh, to try to get the, the funnel moving with Instagram and sponsoring that and get that going. So there's generally multiple types of experimentations based on how do we position the, the company itself? How do we tell that story? Which channels are resonating with us? How do we get enough sort of like flow? And then more, more importantly, how do we sort of like calibrate how much this is costing us to see whether that is going to be a scalable channel to work with? At the end of the day, 
it forces the startup to actually think about things. What is the lifetime value of a customer potentially going to be? What is that cost of customer acquisition? Which channels are going to be costing too much or too little? And this sort of like rigor helps them to think through something which is really important because I think like when I was starting up the first time, and it wasn't only the first time, it was multiple times after the first time, there is a sense of arrogance that a lot of people do have with marketing. It's like, here's the marketing plan. We're going to spend this much on paid marketing because we told the VCs or someone that we're going to spend it. And there's no backup, right? It basically, you just burn through that in one shape or form. And I have several friends who have been at VC-backed startups whereby very large advertising, paid advertising budgets were raised. And yeah, you know, $15 million later, they were like, this doesn't seem to be working at the rate that we thought it would be working. And I think that's another part about that agility in that first stage of the company to be open to experimentation, but also to apply some degree of rigor in times of putting a financial model in place, putting the numbers through that, seeing does it scale properly. And I think, unfortunately, I didn't know any of this when I was running my first couple of companies. And I think like many entrepreneurs make this mistake and it's fine. It's just that many people realize it too late or they come up with, oh shit, I tried to do this, it didn't work. And then the startup fails and that's always sad. But yeah, that's some of the examples that we tried, but also as more than the example, it's a thought process as to how we're thinking through that. At our company, we experiment a lot with even internal projects that we launch, and then we're becoming far more stringent in defining that customer, reaching that customer, which channel are we reaching that customer for? How long is it taking us to get a customer? Are they converting at the right sort of like? And this balances out that product heaviness whereby we're just one feature away. It sort of like brings a lot of humility to product people as well, that you know you just can't out-product your way out of this. I love that. You can't out-product your way <laughs> out of it. You have to think about both sides of the equation, don't you? It's marketing and product both working together. You also mentioned something really interesting there, which is you know, figure out whether this is costing too much or too little. So I think it's a really interesting point because often we think about, okay, this is costing us too much, but perhaps when you find the model that works, right. you know, uh, sometimes when you pay too little, you might not be actually reaching the right people that you might want to be converting. Right. And that thinking around the lifetime value versus customer acquisition is really, really important. Would you then say that the agility side of the marketing is actually probably more important than the tactics themselves? Like if you have that, that agile model and that thought process around a financially model-backed experimentation strategy, would that be sort of a playbook in itself uh, for startups? Because within that, you might find some of the tactics over time that really work for your particular company. Yeah, no, I fully agree. I think like agility, I think does trump it because I think when you look at startups as a whole, we start up with a hypothesis that here's what we believe the market wants and here's what we believe who the customer is. And then here's how we're going to position ourselves and here how we're going to go and try to sell this product. Well, without agility, I think that's when you become arrogant and you sort of like get stuck in the model that you perceive to work. Like this other company made it work so I can make it work. And then you just go head first into that. And I believe like 
that is something where that agility, humility, sort of like working together is whereby everyone is discovering. I mean, you know, Owner and I have talked about a lot about, hey, it has to be this marketing playbook. But the fact of the matter is that a playbook also then inherently has a rigid structure in place, like, hey, I'm going to do A, B, C, D. And whereas I think there can be very large abstract playbooks for startups, as you can probably find online and a lot of people talk about. But I think that it's quite dangerous to sort of like take them to the T and sort of like see like, hey, this is what I'm going to be working on. So if the whole team is in this experimental sort of like phase to experiment as to what works, and then it's a great thing to, I mean, a few times in my career, I've hit it where suddenly those customers start converting and the money starts coming in. And then you're like, hey, this is a really good feeling. And uh, it's usually happened in the most sort of like unlikeliest spots with, you know, when we were selling HR software, I was selling to HR people. As soon as I switched selling from HR people to salespeople who needed that data that I was selling, the business just took off. But that's where the rigid sort of like mindset from a product point of view was like, I build HR software. And I think like, you know, this is the first piece of advice now that I give a lot of HR startups reach out to us. The first piece of advice that I give them is like, are you sure HR is the buyer of your product? Because usually they don't have the discretionary budgets to actually pay for what you're selling. So who really wants what you're selling? I wish someone had told me that in 2010 would have saved me two years. That's the core question before you start any marketing activity. Let me ask you a little bit more difficult question, something that we debate a lot. Where do you start to bring the long-term thinking and the brand building into the mix? Because when you are focused on experimentation based on financial foundation, then you tend to compare things based on how quick the return on investment is going to be. Whereas brand building is long and tedious. Like for example, with Read Screener, you had to invest three years of writing articles and positioning yourselves as a thought leader in the industry for being able to reap the benefits. And if three years ago you sat down and compared Facebook ads versus building a blog, Facebook ads would always win. So at what point do you think founders should start thinking about long-term building and what's the mindset shift that needs to happen in order to give long-term ideas the value that they deserve? Yeah, definitely. It's a hard sort of like thing. I wish I could tell you like, hey, so we sort of like just picked the blog and we wanted to build a brand and we did it over three years and here we are. The fact of the matter is when we started off, Facebook ads were just not converting as much and he wrote a piece and it got viral. And I was like, you should probably do this a lot more and uh, with consistency. And I think that word consistency, what you were bringing up, which is brand building, requires consistency over time to actually build something of value because you have to continually remind customers that you exist and who you are. And that comes with consistently putting out stuff. I think as a business sort of like moves, and when I think about HOV as a, as a business now, which has, you know, in some shape or form has been around for over five years, we've recently started to sort of like start talking about the, the brand of HOV and how we want to be positioned in the market because it has to expand more than just my network and things like that. So I think, I feel like in the earlier days when we think about like brand, I think 
my own reasoning was that, like you said, is let's do this and let's run this, but it's never given that sort of like high priority over time. It's usually this very steady sort of like, okay, we're going to post on Instagram once a day for the next three years. And that perhaps could be something. So when I think about brand building, I think more about like, what are those consistent sort of like messaging or services or stuff that we're going to be putting out there over time, which is going to help put into people's head like, oh, if you want to buy REITs in Singapore, you should be using REIT Screener. And, you know, now people luckily type REIT Screener into Google and, you know, we just show up and it's sort of like built there. So we've taken usually a very organic approach with brand building with our businesses. I haven't had the spot whereby, you know, we've had the business who, who is doing more than 10, $25 million a year in revenue where it's sort of like i would imagine at that point it switches but a lot of our businesses are sub 10 million at that point we're just sort of like churning out stuff consistently over time building that loyal customer base which has low churn usually word of mouth is very high so our finance business also has a training arm which has an extremely high word of mouth sort of like referral rate into the business based on the value that they've got. When I think about brand, I think about those consistent sort of like things that we're putting out there. Perfect. There's been a lot of great value, I think, for the listeners today. So I might try and summarize. You started by really highlighting this important point, which is that startups, especially in the early stages, have to really balance product and marketing. So on one hand, you're building a product that you believe has an audience, has uh, something the market wants but also having to think about the marketing side of things and how we define that customer, how we define the positioning and reach those customers in the most efficient manner is really, really important early on. And usually, as you pointed out, a lot of the mistakes that may happen is that um, companies tend to jump straight into tactics. And what a lot of startups perhaps miss is thinking about things a little more strategically early on. So putting more thought around what is the actual positioning of the company, who is the actual customer that we want to reach, and what might be those ways, ways to reach the customers in a, in a better way. Also, the other thing, the other opportunity perhaps is to focus on the story a little bit. So that story is very important, especially early stages. So the pitch story, the founder story, and how to tell that company story in a really interesting way is, is perhaps an opportunity to focus on. And also, the other thing that you mentioned was that a good place to start perhaps is for your company in your particular industry, figure out what that funnel might look like, or in other words, what the customer journey might look like. And how is somebody going to move through that funnel or that journey may actually give really good cues on what tactics might be along the way on that journey. And you also mentioned a really good tip, perhaps, which is leverage the founder's capacity or the founder's profile. So for example, if you do have a founder who is a thought leader, diligently updated content programs, blogs, things like that, may actually drive quite a lot of reach and quite, quite a lot of um, impact for the business. But at the end of the day, there is no silver bullet. There is no playbook. The tactics themselves really depend fully on the business, what makes sense for your particular business or your industry. But what you can do is really employ this uh, model of agility and experimentation. So whether it's at the top of the funnel or other parts of the funnel, looking at different things, 
um, you know, paid marketing, blog strategies, influencer marketing, whatever happens to reach the customers that your company is trying to reach really comes from that agility and experimentation and trial along the way. And one way to employ these trials and these experimentation models is really to build that financial marketing model. So how much is a customer potentially worth for the business? And then therefore, how much does the marketing cost to find that model that makes sense? So focusing on lifetime value versus uh, cost of customer acquisition and really figuring out, are we paying too much for too little for a particular customer? And once you find that sweet spot, those places are likely the ones that you want to amplify and use um, a lot more. So agility is really key. But it's more about the thought process than the actual experiments themselves. And every company, every startup has a lot of hypotheses. So you have hypotheses around what the market wants, who the customer is, and how you reach them. And moving away from those hypotheses sometimes may, might be really, really healthy. And you can do that through this experimentation and agility. And you mentioned that even your hypotheses around who your customer is and who actually wants what you have built as you said in your HR example, I might be worth experimenting on as well. And then finally, brand building requires consistency. So in the early days, when, when startups and companies don't necessarily have the funds to pay for expensive brand marketing or brand advertising, that doesn't have to be the tactic. You, can, you have the opportunity to define your story and consistently tell that story even organically from the start. And it's a good way to leverage a story that you have and build a brand over time. Is there anything that we missed? No, I think I'm going to take that last bit and I'm going to send it to every single founder in my portfolio. <laughs> be like, excuse me, here's a very good synopsis of stuff that you should regularly replay if you ever find yourself, that's why we need more money for Facebook ads. It's like probably a good thing. No, that was a great yeah. synopsis. What's the best way for our listeners to follow your story and your adventures? Yeah, so the best way is probably get on to hov.co, which is our website. We have a blog which is updated very regularly. And we also have a newsletter which you can sign up called HOV Access. And it's sent out every second week. And it has the best stuff that we've been reading and lots of the things that we want our founders to know and a lot of opportunities within the fund. I think that's probably going to be the best way how to reach us. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure having you on the show, Osman. And thank you, Thomas. Thank you very much for inviting. Yeah, thank you very much. And thank you for all the listeners as well. And uh, have a fantastic week. Thank you for listening to Strategy and Sourdough. Please drop us an email at hello at strategyandsourdough.com with any questions, suggestions, or feedback on this episode. 